My name is Ailey and today is the 28th of January and this interview is taking place via Zoom. So to get us started, um, I'd just like to know a little bit about you and your background. Could you tell me your name and just the year that you were born, please, for our, for our records? Yeah, my name is Chris Kelly and I was born in 1960. Great, painless. Um, and where did you grow up, Chris? I grew up in Dumbarton in the west coast of Scotland. So. And how would you describe your background, I guess, professionally um, or work focused? Um, my background is that I was a fine art graduate from Duncan Jordanson College of Art in Dundee in 1982. Um, and from there got involved in community arts, returned and did a master's degree in public art and design. I then ran, along with another artist, um, we ran our own public art company, um, doing commissions in public spaces, artworks in public spaces. A wide variety um, from uh, city centre monuments through to housing scheme embellishments to the environment and also temporary artworks and things. And so heavily involved in the arts as a away from the gallery and away from people's broad or normal conventional view of, of the arts. Um, and then as part of that process, I, I, I applied for a Scottish Arts Council um, artist in residency post at um, Royal Victoria Hospital in Dundee in the mid nineties. And partly that was about, um, I'd done some work um, in terms of public art and, and uh, another couple of hospital sites. Um, but I quite liked the idea of being embedded within a hospital space and, and trying to develop that strategy a bit more. So expecting to do work in terms of addressing the environment, the healthcare environment. Um, my work in Royal Victoria actually ended out um, me getting much more involved in person-centred, patient-centred activity. So I ended up doing a lot of work with palliative care within the local hospice, people at end of life. But then also got heavily involved in the development of a new unit, um, Centre for Brain Injury Rehabilitation, where I was working with people with acquired brain injury and with stroke and contributing to their rehab journey, um, but using creative means to do so. And really that was that, you know, um, once you started dabbling that, it was me, I was hooked. I got stuck. Um, I didn't go back. I went back to some public art activity, but ended out um, arts and healthcare became the principal focus. Um, and to the extent that, you know, when you are working in that setting, we established a support group of clinicians and um, health administrators um, and myself and another artist Gillian McFarland who was working uh, as an artist in residence and art therapist in Perth but for the same trust um, we collaborated and you know got support from each other peer support as two artists working in a health context and actually then suggested that the, the groups, the, our management groups came together and that in fact formed Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust. So that, you know, 2002, that was formalized into um, the organization that is now Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust and that I've worked for um, since 2004. 
you really almost sort of created your own job there with with your experience. To some extent, yeah. I mean, I think the, it was very apparent that um, the Tayside area didn't have, although it had a long history of public art and some arts and health activity, it didn't have an organisation. Um, Grampian Healthcare Arts Trust was there in, in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Um, there was um, Artlink Central and Artlink Lothian. Um, there was, you know, arts and hospitals in Glasgow. There were various other agencies. And it was very clear that there was a need for something in the Tayside area. And so that's, and I think most of the organisations have emerged that way, you, you know, from people being locally active and locally interested and actually finding particular areas where they would focus. And for me, that ended up becoming stroke and acquired brain injury became one of the main areas. And um, in 2002, I, I drafted a lottery bid um, to run a three-year program for stroke and acquired brain injury in the community and out with the, the hospital area that I was working, but elsewhere across Tayside. And that became the first major piece of funding for Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust. And that's when I moved from working on short-term contracts for the NHS to becoming a permanent um, employee for Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust. I'd love to know what it is that appeals to you about working with arts in the healthcare setting. It, it's... Um... There was always an interest in my, I was never a gallery artist. I was never, I never saw and whether that was a lack of faith in my own work or a lack of confidence in, in my belief that people would actually want to buy artworks that I made in that, that way. Um, but, I had, but I think there must be something larger to it. I was always interested in the arts as, um, that could work in, in other contexts. That it shouldn't just be seen in isolation as, you know, a rarefied creature for us to be to be admired, that it should have an active role in, in society. Um, and I think probably the reason that I really got enthused by healthcare was because it showed me that I can actually deliver on face-to-face -face and I can work quite intimately and quite closely with individuals to their benefit. And I don't necessarily, I, I think it took the work in palliative care and within the brain injury unit to really show me that I was capable of doing that and therefore the other artists must be capable, you know, because it's not something that's a unique skill to one individual. It's broadly applicable within, you know, if you get the right context and the right support in place. So what about um, that or the Arts Trust? What, what is the sort of remit? Um, of the trust? We have three key aims. Um, one is to support people with long-term health conditions, to support people both in hospital and in the community that are living with challenging health. And, and that's expressed in a very, you know, as a very broad remit. And there is also clear recognition that um, support and encouragement is required to address healthcare environments. So we still do do encourage and project manage um, public art activity within healthcare settings, um, you know, and have done throughout the, the period of time that the organisations existed. And then the third element is to be actively involved in 
the development of arts and health um, and therefore to be doing to be involved at a national basis to be networking to be linked in and, and to be trying to drive that agenda to some extent um, to the the point where we've again we secured um, I secured um, chief scientist office funding um, in 2012 13 um, to run a, a, a two-year pro uh, research project um, in stroke rehabilitation in patient units so the ACEs study arts is creative engagement for stroke um, it was a randomized control trial so it was a full medicalized research project but it was looking at the role of the artist and um, contributing to um, rehabilitation and to, for people recently having experienced stroke and so you know that that was a major piece of research you know it's now cited in 25 other pieces of research and um, is still a, a well-referenced piece of work um, and so that sort of activity plus being involved with national forums presenting at conferences and really trying to be as active and as as vocal as we can about the value of arts and health. I mean, the, in the past two or three years, the agenda has completely changed, and the pandemic, the year of the pandemic, will also um, hugely um, mark out the the nature of arts and health because um, well-being has been identified. Has you know, it's finally been accepted that the um, personal well-being is a hugely significant contributor to people's long-term health. And there is distinct evidence to show that um, people with long-term health conditions withdraw, um, are more likely to be socially isolated, are even more likely to be culturally isolated, to engage less with mainstream culture um, and, and the, the provision that is there. And therefore, you know, to actively be a bridge for those people can have an enormous impact on their health and well-being. And I think that, you know, it's it's growing and growing. Scottish government now recognise it. It's part of the culture strategy. It's part of the health strategy. In the next five years, there should be um, much clearer routes for people to be able to tap into this sort of support. What was it like then, you're saying things are improving and we're kind of recognising more that link between physical and mental health and, and how important well-being is to people's rehabilitation and recovery. What was it like, you know, in the two, early 2000s when you were sort of setting up the trust and you were trying to sort of promote these ideas? Um, I mean, it was mixed, you know, if you, if you got the right person. Um, and got a sympathetic hearing. Um, I mean, the fact is, people were always they were always interested because for novelty value, if nothing else, you know, it would you know when you offered to go and speak to the um, you know the trustees of uh, an NHS board, and you're actually going in and showing them interesting bits of artwork that patients have made, and you're talking about their personal narrative and, and how they, they've expressed the, the value of that experience, then it's a very rich um, ex experience for them to receive instead of just looking at statistics and, and, and boring reports. So in that sense, there was always that advantage. But at the same time, um, 
there was always the argument that people would go, well, where's the clinical evidence? You know, where's the evidence of change? Um, and, but I never found that, that too daunting. Um, from the outset, Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust, we, we strategized that we, everything would be very carefully and, and properly evaluated, not for the sake of funders, but as part of our, part of our learning process. And it's embedded in what we do now. And so, um, yes, it's valuable to be able to pass that information on. Um, but most importantly, it, it's about how, how we have learned and how we have adapted and changed as an organization. And a, an example of that would be that in, in the early funding stages, we got money for stroke and acquired brain injury. So that was great. And then we would occasionally pick up a small pot of money to work with another long-term condition group that expressed an interest. Now, whether that was MS or COPD, or um, we did a, a considerable amount of work with early stage dementia. Um, and so we were getting, you know, occasionally picking up little pots of, of money where we could work with a group of people for a year or more. And then eventually we were, we were beginning to recognize that although those peer support groups were very important and to work with them and to work with them in isolation, i.e. as a single condition group was very valuable. Um, we, I'd started developing projects with other mainstream partners. So we've now got a long-standing relationship with Dundee Contemporary Arts um, and with the, and the printmaking studio there as well. And what we ended up doing, originally I was taking in people with stroke and acquired brain injury, but then we thought, well, we'll also let in some of the people with MS and some of the people with early stage dementia. And because it become an annual program, three, four different activities every year, we could offer it to a broader range of participants. And they all worked so well together. It didn't matter that, they, you know, they all had an empathy. They were all coming in not to, not to, discuss or deal with their impairment. Um, but they were coming in to develop their capacity to act. So it wasn't about what they couldn't do. It was always about what they could do. And so if you had someone who had a significant communication problem alongside someone who had a bad tremor, alongside someone who was in a wheelchair, you know, everyone recognized each other's difficulty, but also everyone recognized that everyone was driving forward to be achieving something on their own terms. Um, and so what we started doing after that was we started applying for funding for mixed long-term condition groups. So it was actually, we could bring people together based around interest, around the medium of the arts or around local geography. Um, so that particularly if you're working in a rural, rural setting to actually build a group of you know, 10 or 12 people with MS in rural Perthshire could be very difficult. But if you put together a mixed long-term condition group in rural Perthshire, then yeah, you, you can get those numbers and more um, brought together. And the, the evaluation work that we were doing showed that it was just as beneficial in that context. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, and to some extent, it, it, there was a similar way we had to, because we've always evaluated and always been looking for new ways uh, um, that we can deliver successfully with people. Although the pandemic's been a nightmare, 
Um, it hasn't been too difficult for us to, to turn to doing online programs or to be doing distance programs where we're delivering materials to people's doors um, and you know using telephone or video conference support or regular Zoom meetings. Um, and, and so we've not been able to do anything like the amount of work we would normally do, but we have been busy throughout the pandemic year and, um, and will continue to be until such times as we can get back to face-to-face -face working. And we'll probably do more online work in the future regardless, because it also works very effectively for some people. Yeah, that's really interesting how you've used that learning then to shape and, and sort of ensure your security in the future and make sure your work is having an impact. Um, I'm interested in how you um, find people or welcome people into your groups. Um, is that done through like a referral from a GP or um, do people just find out about that and, and come along to activities? There are, uh, there are inevitably there are a wide range of ways that we can we can access people. Um, we're very conscious. There are only myself and my colleague, um, both of us part-time, that work for the organisation. Um, so we are the producers, the managers, the administrators, whatever. Um, and what we do is we commission artists to lead short-term programmes. Um, so we don't run a venue. We don't run a continuous service. Um, in as much as you know that you can drop in and, and, and just keep going for weeks and weeks. Generally, our model of practice is you know eight to ten weeks, once a week engagement. Whether that's um, you know pre-pandemic meetings in the community, um, or um, you know we're, we've still tried to stick to that model to some extent for the online programs as well. And. Because there's only the two, we, we always work in partnership. We're always looking for others that, that can come on board with what we're doing. So in, in some circumstances, it will be working with, you know, the MS Society. Um, we work closely with the community health, um, the CHPs, uh, the health and social care partnerships as they are now. Um, but equally, we will take individual referrals from specialist nurses, from um, specialist workers, chest, heart, and stroke Scotland, different people. Um, but equally, we'll take self-referrals from people with long-term conditions. We are, we are not, you know, people aren't going to come to us and lie as a way of getting on a program. If someone comes to us and says that they have a health issue, you know, and of course, we want to know about that health issue so that we can be sure that whatever that we're going to be providing is not going to exacerbate or present difficulties for them. Or so that the artist will know what sort of impairment they may have to navigate um, to ensure that the person has a satisfying experience. So, we, you know, we have to build a relationship with individuals. We have to speak to them and, and with some degree of depth about their health and and their circumstances. But that's only to get to the point where we can shove it to one side and just and let them be who they are and, and do as much work as they possibly can. Um, what we have found is that often uh, that community are interlinked as well. 
um, not always through another agency, but just through their locality or people that they've heard about and know. And they will often refer friends or acquaintances or other people that they're aware of into our system as well. So, I mean, we, we seek their permission on a regular basis to maintain contact details. So we have an active database of, of you know, over 300 participants across Tayside. We don't work with them all, all the time, but we look to keep in touch with them. Um, what happens is that, you know, someone may get involved in one program for eight weeks and we may never see them again. And that may have been plenty and they may have been very happy. But then there are people who still engage with our service that I worked with when I was artist in residence in Royal Victoria Hospital and they were in the brain injury unit and they just had a stroke. So these are people who have lived with the consequences of their stroke for nearly 20 years. And they are still excited and interested and, and challenged by the creative processes that we put in front of them. Yeah, it's really amazing to have someone, you know, get so much out of the work that you do and to be coming along for that length of time. It's really a testament to to this. I mean, it sounds really interesting. Um, what sort of range of um, kind of workshops do you offer? Um, we originally started off focusing on the visual arts. Visual arts is my background. Um, but very quickly, we, it started to open up. I mean, that, that said, although my background's visual arts, I had done other things with other people. Um, but no, I mean, we will use a wide range of visual arts. So if you think of drawing and painting um, as, as basic elements, collage, that sort of way of working, but then printmaking, um, mixed media, um, different forms of printmaking, whether that's in the DCA or in the community. We've done ceramics, we've done sculpture programs. Um, we do digital photography, um, animation. Um, we're now, we've done creative writing for a number of years um, with different, different writers leading different programs. We do a lot of work with music now. We use vocal coaches for choirs and for singing activity but we've also had other musicians in doing compositional work. We've done work with the RSNO. We are regular partnership working with the RSNO. Currently have a program just now doing an online musical composition program with the RSNO um, for a group of people with aphasia, communication impairment from stroke and acquired brain injury. Um, we're looking at storytelling for the first time. We have a new program that we're wanting to do with um, some early stage dementia participants. We've done dance, um, whether that be um, tradi more traditional dancing, um, did a revisit of waltz in various forms again with dementia. But we also brought in a hip hop artist to work with people and did some hip hop dance exercise activity as well. So, you know, we're actually as broad-minded as we possibly can be. A lot of it depends on the arts that are available um, and also their skills and knowledge base. What we do is that we try to build relationships with our arts as well and use them. We, we can't offer anyone permanent work, but if someone can pick up two or three contracts off as a year, then it can make a decent contribution to their sort of portfolio of career. Um, 
And so, yeah, you know, but it's, it takes a bit of getting used to um, and it takes a particular outlook by the artist to work well in that context. Um, some artists aren't entirely comfortable working, you know, with, with people with profound communication difficulties or, you know, with early stage dementia or whatever. It doesn't suit everyone. Um, and so we also run a, a stepping stone mentoring program, particularly for new graduates and stuff, but also for other artists who are interested in developing their work into this field. So we'll actually get them in, in a volunteer capacity, um, supporting a lead artist, not so much in the online situation just now, but pre-pandemic, that was what we were doing. And a, a very significant number of the artists that we've worked with have come through the system that way, building their knowledge and experience of working with people with long-term conditions through that mentored volunteer role, and then stepping up to, to take on you know, the lead role where they have to design programs and also take on board the evaluation requirements that we make of them. And do you attend these workshops as well? Or are you just an infrequent attender or do you tend to stick to more kind of... A semi-frequent attender. Semi-frequent. Yeah. I mean, it's that whole thing. If, you know, some of our more experienced artists, you can sit further back. Um, and but some of the less experienced, you want to be there and to be encouraging and to be supportive um, as much as possible. If there are volunteers going in, you want to be able to go in and to observe and, and learn about them. Um, but the fact is you also want to maintain your relationship with the participants because it'll be us that go back and offer them something else. And it'll be a different artist that they may be working with the next time. And so the continuity and the long-term relationship for these people with our organization is, is really through myself and through Kareem uh, as the, the coordinating staff. And I guess through having that sort of continued relationship, you'll be able to really see the impact that participation yeah. is having. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Like what are some, some success stories you've had? Um, I, I mean, it's, um, there is, there's an enormous range um, and, and it's not to say that one success is greater than another. A small, what may seem like a tiny perceived achievement can be enormous for an individual. And examples can go from, I mean, we have um, someone who got involved in our programs post-stroke um, and has since gone on and gone to art college um, as part of their journey um, because they, they discovered that it meant so much to them and they, and they, they took so much from it. Um, but we, we talk about the benefits for our participants are, you know, in, in terms of our evaluation, we look, at, we look at the art outcomes and the experience and the enjoyment of the art, but there is also the psychosocial benefits. Um, and so uh, an example of that would be that by coming to the, you know, someone coming from um, Perth or from Blair Gowrie, um, but they come into Dundee to go to the DCA for our summer schools or whatever. 
there have been numerous occasions where we've been told that that's the first time someone has traveled on public transport since they, their diagnosis. So the fact is, it's, in a way, it's not about making art at all. It's about raising their motivation to a level where they're prepared to take risk, except it's not risk, but to, to overcome that barrier that there, there had never before been anything that they could justify to themselves as a, a good enough reason to go and get the bus into Dundee, you know, which says a lot because Dundee's quite a good city. It's got quite a lot on in it. Um, it's not, you know, it's not the hellhole it once was. Um, but for people with long-term conditions, it's it can be very difficult to really motivate them to get out and to, to genuinely engage. Um, so those sorts of achievements, uh, we count as, as huge um, benefits. We've had people who have um, met other people while they've been with us and developed relationships, you know, strong friendships, companions, whatever. Um, the peer support that, that can grow out of a shared love of, of creative process as opposed to a shared experience of disease. You know, it's actually a much more positive reason to like someone as if, if you both really enjoy, you know, going to a choir together or, you know, whatever else. So there are, you know, what we do, a lot of our evaluation is based on the responses that our participants give us. We, we profile them before every program and we get them to complete questionnaires at the end. We record anecdotal evidence, um, you know, there, there are a whole series of ways of collecting evidence. Um, and they all reflect on what, how it's benefited them. But the main things that people are talking about is, is their confidence, their um, self-esteem, their socialization, um, the fact that the communication, that they've got other people to talk to. Um, and to see, our participants um, declaring, you know, 75% of them are saying that that's, there's, they've seen a significant benefit in their, um, their personal confidence from participating in the program, you know, and to have those statistics regularly occurring. Um, I mean, it's also the attendance that levels that we get where we, you know, consistently at 85% and higher attendance levels for our program activities. But when you look at people's attendance at outpatient clinics or in other settings, they're, you know, woefully poor. Um, and so it is, it's about finding things and ways, finding the right sort of engagement and the right way of delivering it that motivates people to get active and to get engaged with life. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it is those like, there's, it's so individual for every person, what their goals are and what it is they want to achieve. Um, yeah, uh, that, I mean, it can, evaluation is a challenge. Um, uh, and it, for us, it's about recognising that it's multifaceted. Um, there is the participants, what they will express in a questionnaire by ticking boxes and writing a few comments. Um, but there's also the artwork that they produce in whatever form, and that's recorded and that's built into the evaluation. Um, there's the artist's perception of what has gone on, and that is obviously very important in terms of how we do it. 
for every programme, we do an introductory meeting in advance of the programme. Halfway through, we have an interim meeting to check the, on progress with it. At the end, we have a review meeting. And all of that is documented and that feeds into the evaluation process as well. So is it where the artist has devised a programme, we say to every artist, we want a programme plan. We want to know what you're planning on doing. So is it when you change it, we can discuss why. Because virtually every programme plan will change. Because once the artist sits down with the group and the group start to influence the process, then quite rightly, it changes. It shifts and it moves um, to meet their needs um, and to, you know, give them the, the outcomes that they're, or the outputs, certainly, that they're looking to produce. Um, so, but equally, if we have partners involved, um, whether that be someone from, you know, um, a, another charity partner, whether that's the MS or COPD or whatever, or, I mean, we also deliver in the inpatient setting as well. So very often we'll be working with senior charge nurses in, in a stroke rehab unit um, um, or with occupational therapists. Um, and we, we look to draw on everyone's perspective um, and everyone's experience of, of what we deliver. Um, and again, the reason for that is because from the outset, we wanted to learn. And you only learn by asking everyone what they thought of the process. Yeah. <laughs> I know it sounds simple, but the problem is figuring out how to record all that and still keep on, you know, four sides of A4 paper as a report. Tiny font. <laughs> no, no, no. Try not to do that. That's, that. That just becomes punishing to read. <laughs> but yeah, it can be tricky. So tell me a bit about um, funding. So how, how are you funded? A variety of ways. I mean, first and foremost, we have to acknowledge the um, support that we get from NHS Tayside. Um, we are provided with our small office um, we are, um, which they just service as they would any other office. So it has, um, we're on the NHS server, and we have access to their telephone system and what have you. So in that respect, we're, we're very well supported um, from NHS T side. That, that gives us the baseline that we're not trying to raise money just, just to have a roof over our head. Um, so that's great. Um, over the years, different things have happened. For the first seven years um, of the stroke and acquired brain injury work, um, after the three years lottery, it was then securing other funding to keep it going from a variety of sources till eventually um, NHS Tayside themselves decided that they valued it enough that they would actually provide us a small recurring funding pot for it. Um, so that secured an element of the stroke work. What we then do is that by having that recurring funding, we can access other funds. We can use it as leverage or as, you know, for match funding. Um, and so the stroke work underpinned the organization for quite some time. But then as, as it's developed and, you know, and with the other small programs and or short-term funding for MS, for dementia, for um, COPD and what have you, chronic pain, um, gradually that argument built up for the mixed long-term condition um, funding. And 
again, we've had funding from a variety of sources for that as well, um, from Creative Scotland uh, for a, th a three-year programme with them, um, from Ganachy. We've had a long term, we've had two long courses of funding from the Robertson's Trust at different stages. Again, and they they support your core funding, which is great. Um, and at the moment, we have a combination of a series of small funders funding different elements. We have just recent or at the start of last year, um, we secured three year funding uh, for the community fund from the lottery for the further development of our long, mixed long-term condition work. And as I say, we have the recurring start project funding, uh, the stroke work. So we also fundraise. Um, and we also, I mean, uh, I think we've run five art auctions over the years um, and each time raised, you know, cleared sort of 10, 12,000 pounds um, to go into program activity for participants. Um, we've had very generous donations. Um, I think on two occasions, we've had donations of over 10,000 uh, pounds to the organization from individuals um, who are being impressed by what we've done and, and look to support it. Um, and other small fundraising approaches and um, you know, contributions from individuals as well. So very varied, like, you know, mix of pots and I suppose yeah. we're always on the lookout for new money and new ways to bring in. Yes, to a degree. I mean, I think, there, you know, there have been times when we've been, had to spend a lot, a lot of time looking for small amounts of money. Um, but the fact that at the moment we have secured the, the three-year lottery money, we have the START project and we have a couple of other funders um, in partnership with for all of that means that at the moment we're not we're not chasing our tail for funding, and because there's only the two of us as staff, um, that's a much better position to be in. Um, because if a lot of our time is taken up chasing funds, then we're not doing our work as, or we don't have as much time to do our work producing program activity for our participants. Have you noticed a change in either positively or negatively I guess and when you first started out with that in the early 2000s and now between the amount of money that's available or how easy it is to access um, funding? I'd, mm, yes it is to some extent it, it's not easier because um, there, there have been different things that have happened that have made um, securing independent funding um, a bit more difficult. One of the big examples was that when local authorities shed their culture um, to arm's length organisations who could then apply for funding and suddenly there were a whole bunch of new people in you know, looking for lottery money, looking for Creative Scotland money, looking for Robertson support, looking for Ganachy money, you know. Um, and so, and also there are more organisations now linking into the, the idea of arts and health um, and arts and health and wellbeing. So to some extent, there's even greater competition. Um, and also, I, I mean, and I'll, you know, 
without making any predictions, um, I expect the next couple of years is going to be really tough in terms of access and money. I mean, there, yes, there was a lot of money put up in the short term for people, you know, to bridge them and during COVID and to try and make sure that there was some things going on. But there'll also be a lot of organisations that won't come back from this, from furloughing staff or from, you know, and um, it, there's going to be a lot of competition for what limited money there is out there, you know, in the next year and two. Um, but having said all that, I'd probably enter into any funding application with a degree of confidence now. Um, and maybe that's just from having done it for so long. And, and having, as an organization, having the background and the evidence that we now have. Um, and and the fact that we've been as involved as we have for so long, the fact that we've, we've done the academic side, we've done the research, we've done the randomized control trial, and there, you know, we can show that we are a responsible organization, that we have longevity, and that we have followed a true path that's, you know, that's given benefit to people. So um, doesn't mean that you always get, you know, and there may be other people with better ideas or with greater need. Um, and that's just something you have to accept. Um, but at the same time, I think we can go in, in every circumstance with a, a real faith in what we do and a real belief that we have something important to offer. How would you explain, because I guess the people who are maybe listening to these interviews might not necessarily have a background in this sort of work and understand. So why do you think it's important that we, that we fund and invest in this sort of work that we're doing with arts and healthcare? Because, and as everyone's gradually realizing, that your health is not just the medicalized model. That it's how, and if you are able to contribute well and receive positive contribution within your society, then you will be happier and healthier. And if you're happier and healthier, you're more likely to be a positive contribution to the, the community than a drain on the community. And, and there is a real danger that people with long-term conditions have been painted as a drain on their community too often in the past, when the fact is there are, they have a, they have a huge amount to offer. And, you know, a huge amount to offer completely separately from their condition but also a huge amount to offer in terms of expertise and knowledge about their condition. Um, these people know what it's like to live in these circumstances. And if they're telling us that by being encouraged to engage in the arts can make a fundamental and profound difference to their, their outlook and to the quality of their life, then you know that's the best evidence that you can put forward. You know? Yeah, absolutely. What about and it's fun. 
you know, <laughs> there's, there's, and, and let's let's be clear. You know, I'm in danger of sounding very very serious about all. That. But first and foremost, we're, you know, this isn't about. Um, we don't we don't set up programs with people to address their psychosocial deficits. You know, we don't. We set up programs for people to engage with the arts to get the hit that artists know you get from making something and being amazed that you actually managed to make that. You know, the best the best art that any artist produces is the one that they can't really figure out just how they did it. The, it comes together in a way that is that has a certain magic to it. And if you can share that hit, if people can get that hit when they're living with impairment and the rest of society is essentially categorizing them as um, less than valuable, um, then that's a transforming experience. That's that fun. Um, can also be, you know, an epiphany as well. Yeah, that's beautiful, Chris. No, <laughs> I, 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 I get carried away at times, eh? <laughs> no, it's great. These are this is the this is the sort of moments that you want to get carried away on, you know, when it's going on record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, you know, important uh, to people to realize the importance of of what art can do for people whether you have a long-term condition or not you know yeah you know, the point of this is to to explain to people and help people understand how art is a positive force for everybody yeah and and it's a it's a positive force for everybody's mental health because you know without you know you don't need to say mental health you know, as a category, um, but that's what it, you know. If it makes you feel good, then that's good for your mental health. If it means that, if it if it means that someone can take a piece of work, have it on display in the DCA, invite in their family, have a wee wine reception, you know, um, and they come in at five o'clock at night, and there's other folk around, and the work's behind glass on the wall. You know, it's a display. It's not an exhibition because, you know, it's only the high art that's an exhibition in the DCA. But we have a display, we have a reception, and they can stand there and they can be so proud of what they produced and their family can be gobsmacked and their family, it can change not just the perception of the individual about themselves, but it can fundamentally change families and carers' perceptions of that individual. And that is transformative as well. Yeah, it's the, the difference in identity that art yeah. and participation can, can bring. Yes. Yeah. You're, it's no longer, um, you know, uh, George in the chair. It's, it's George who did the, the Andy Warhol print, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's... But it's also, it can be a, a, a hugely important experience for people in transitioning as well. You know, particularly as people readjust in terms of their lives in the community post-diagnosis. Um, and perhaps through, they've lost their jobs, you know, they've, they've lost friends, they've lost social life. And that you're saying to them that there are things that they can engage in and meet other people, but have positive outputs, uh, you know, and build up their confidence. You know, it can it can really be a difference between someone heading downhill and actually helping to find a, a new path. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've been chatting for almost an hour. Yeah. So um, I'm conscious of, of your time. Um, I'm happy to, to continue chatting, but I just wondered if there's anything else that you felt like you hadn't had a chance to, to kind of mention or talk about um, before that close up. Um, <clears throat> trying to think. Okay. Um, a moment, a pause. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, in a roundabout way, we've, we're, we've probably covered most things. I think um, I'd taken great support from the idea of building a national network um, and the, the fact that there are, it happens all over the country. Everywhere it's unique, but it happens everywhere. Um, and it can happen everywhere. And that's, you know, and, and there are people that you can turn to and get support from and or just, you know, share with. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've never been scared of the politics of it. And I actually, and it is going to become more of a, um, of a feature within the, the political discussions as we go forward. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's, that's important. Um, the one thing that the pandemic shown is, is that mental health has to be addressed and, you know, um, and so a lot of the things that our organization and organizations like ours have been seeing, um, have been so heavily emphasized by the pandemic. Um, and that mental health is not just about a diagnosis of mental health. It's actually about um, the community's welfare. Um, and that there is an active role there for the arts, um, you know. So yeah, provided that we can all have fun while we're doing it. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I think unless there's anything on your list of questions or in your, I'll have a wee, have a wee skim through. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, mm. I guess like the, the, the sort of questions we normally close up with are, you know, why do you think it's important that we cover mental health and art, which you've answered really beautifully. Um, and then I guess, yeah, the, the last question is, it's quite a big question. So how would you like the relationship between the arts and health or mental health in Scotland to develop in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that's, yep. Um, I think, Again, I'm involved in the arts, culture, health and well-being Scotland, which is a network or a fairly relatively new network organisation. Um, we've got a little bit of Scottish government money, a little bit of Creative Scotland money to try and drive forward an agenda. Um, the culture strategy from the Scottish government has quite clearly emphasised the importance of arts and health. Um, but one of the things that we, we, I've been pushing for and, and others um, is cross-portfolio working. I think it's all good, and you know, that an awful lot of the energy for this comes from the arts. Um, and there is a, a, an appetite for it within areas of, of the health sector as well. But if we are genuinely going to take forward a well-being agenda politically. Um, 
that crossover has to be happening at a political level. It has to be happening at a, um, not just in local, locally and within health boards or health and social care partnerships. It has to be the, the Minister for Health and the Minister for Culture um, are actually driving forward an agenda and not just, you know, in terms of words, but in terms of budgets. Um, that a health, the, the health budget has to be, pre they have to be prepared to spend some of it on creative engagement processes. Um, we can always draw in some money through the arts as well. Um, but if you look, as an organization, we don't get a huge amount of money from arts funding. Um, we stepped away from that direction because there were, we felt it was the wrong sort of emphasis. And so, you know, as people at Ganachy, Robertson, Stafford Trust, different people like that, um, and Lottery, um, but not through Creative Scotland, but through Community Fund. Um, but there also has to be government money that, that actually does that. Um, and until that is, it'll always be precarious. You know, it, it needs some secure funding routes, I think. Why do you think there, the, the government hasn't established those secure funding routes? Partly the evidence base, you know, but the evidence base is growing now. I mean, it is there. Um, partly, you know, because it's never anyone's first priority. Um, and because it's got, because it's soft. Um, because the benefits are, you know, it's not that you do that and that changes um, in such a direct way. It's a softer approach. But the fact is, uh, even from our own organisation, we know that, you know, the long-term relationship that we've had with people uh, has gone a long way to sustaining their personal mental health and their personal independence. Um, and that these people have been less reliant on other services, you know. Um, but that's that's difficult evidence to to secure funding for when there are so many other. I mean, there's not enough money. You know, we all know that. Um, there's not enough money for the NHS to to treat COVID patients, let alone to do everything else, um, or for the health budget to do everything else. But if we're going to have a realistic way of securing this as a, a genuine benefit for the community, then someone's going to have to accept it and, and start allocating some resources. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. No, pleasure to speak to you. Great. Lovely. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye. -bye.